Well, good morning. If you have Bibles with you this morning, I'm going to ask you to open them and put a finger in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and a finger in Ephesians 4. We're going to get to Ephesians 4 probably, hopefully, near the end of this message, and uh, Matthew a fair bit in the beginning. And so some people might be asking, okay, so what are we doing here? Why are we doing this series or this two-week thing on something called the church? And uh, well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one is uh, there are two weeks left in summer. And we still have a lot of people traveling, and we won't have our fall launch until September 10th, and we'll be beginning a really neat series uh, beginning on September 10th on wisdom, and we're going to be looking at parables and proverbs, and it's going to be about wisdom, because we all need wisdom. Amen? Anybody? Hello? Good morning again. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, one of the reasons why I'm doing this, I wanted to do this with you, this subject called church, this week the why and the what, next week the who and the where, is because it's a refresher. For those of us who are part of the Rock Church, we've been, we planted this church seven and a half years ago uh, with, uh, we came here, just the four members of our family, and we planted this church. And from the very beginning, we, we wanted to look at what does it mean to be the church? And we started fresh. We came here with no preconceived notions, no model in mind. We weren't going to gather like this church over there or that church over there or this denomination or that denomination. And I'll get to some of the reasons why. I think it's important that we discover this. And so for us as a church, we do this about once a year. We do this as a refresher to, to understand what is the mission of the church, uh, um, what is the vision of the church, not just the rock, but the church locally and globally. So that's one of the reasons why we're doing this, a refresher for rocksters. But also throughout the years, go figure, uh, Squamish is quite the transient community, so we have people moving here and then people moving away without permission. Okay, that was, that was a joke. I know. But no, it's what it is, and it's part of the church everywhere. It doesn't matter where it is. Uh, uh, so people come, and, and, and so people learn about the church from our perspective, and we go through this exercise together, and it's important. But then we have new people coming here, and, and so it's good for you, if you're new at The Rock or you're visiting today, for you to have a little bit of an idea, if you're thinking about our church or staying with us as a church, um, what we see as the church. What, what, is our, what are our beliefs? about what the Bible teaches about the church. Lastly, and this is kind of on a personal level, but I think it should be for you as well. Um, I, I don't, you don't have to read very far or listen very much to, to hear in, in our world today, uh, across all spectrums of generations, millennials get blamed for this a lot, and quite frankly, they deserve it. <laughs> no, not just them. It it's, doesn't depend on generations. People criticizing the church. People saying, it just doesn't work for me. Yeah, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, don't need to do that. Doesn't really lift me up. I don't see the purpose. So people being very critical in their hearts and their spirits about the church. I have one hope for this message this week and next week is that your heart will be changed. Your heart will be changed. I understand that we can get hurt. I understand that uh, preachers can, can preach badly or wrongly or whatever it might be. People can maybe let you down. But I hope today and next week you'll see that this church is very precious. Not just this one, but the church is precious to one person in particular. And his name is Jesus. So I've got a few caveats for you as we look at um, what we're doing in the next couple of weeks. One of the things that we tried to do as a church from the very beginning, and this might, this might shock some of you today, some of my language, some of you are going to hear some things, I'm going to say certain things, you're going to go, what did he just say? Is this guy on, on the level? I mean, does this church actually believe sound biblical doctrine? Short answer, yes. But one of the things that we did from the very beginning was we desired very much to, to not get stuck in something called Christianese. 
You know, because like inside the walls of the churches, and most of you have probably been aware of this, and those of you who've been away from church or are new to church, you're probably going, yeah, I've heard the language. I have no idea what they're talking about, but I've heard that. So we've tried to eliminate that. The reason is, is that not only do we want to know the truth and reality of what the church is, what Jesus had in mind, but we want to be able to appropriately articulate that to a lost and dying world. Amen? That's the whole point. And so, for example, one of the things that we often say, and it shocks people sometimes, I'll hold this uh, simulated leather with a, with a purple sash up, and, and you know, we know it's, it's the Bible, right? And so many times people will say, well, yeah, it's the, the Bible is a book. And, well, no, the reality is it's not a book. It's a collection of books written over a period of 1,500 years by 40-plus authors. That's one of the things that we will say here. The other thing that we will say is that the Bible doesn't say anything. How many times have you heard someone say, well, the Bible says... And at that moment, you expect them to beat you over the head with it, right? It's like, the Bible says. Actually, the Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible doesn't say, go and make disciples. Jesus does, as recorded by Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew in, verse, in chapter, uh, uh, chapter 28. So the Bible does not say anything. And so some of you might be saying, well, gosh, this sounds like semantics, Glenn. It's like, are, are, you, are you really... Is it really that important? Well, maybe, maybe not to some of you. Maybe some of you have got your language down, your gospel fluency and language down. But I want to suggest to you that we, we had to investigate these things, and I think it's important for us to refresh. Secondly, as a caveat this morning, I'm going to throw this out there. If you study the New Testament, you're going to find something rather interesting. Contrary to popular belief, the New Testament is actually remar- remarkably silent on how we are to do church. Remarkably silent. I mean, people, people look at the New Testament, they go, yeah, okay, so how are we supposed to open the service? You know, how are we supposed to do this? What's the order of service? You know, who, who says this? Who says that? Who does this? Who does that? It's remarkably actually silent. That's an important point for us to understand here today. And, and for example, it's very, it's very descriptive, There's lots of things that it says that they did or that this happened or that happened, but there's an important difference between being descriptive and prescriptive. In other words, commands. You you, you must do this or do this, Jesus said. You know, I command you to go and make disciples, etc., etc. And so almost all of our current, and hear me when I say this well because I don't want to sound critical um, or uh, this come off wrong, But all of our various denominations that many of us have come through and been part of in the past, um, all of their processes and liturgies, for the most part, are man-made. They're not all wrong. They're man-made. Go ahead, read from Matthew to Revelation over and over again, like I have since I was 23 years of age, which was only about a dozen years ago. Okay, longer than that. You're going to find that there's a lot of silence on this. There aren't a lot of prescriptives about how to gather as the church. And so we we decided as a church early on that this was really important for us, that we needed to know what the truth of this was all about and and how should we gather. But we came at it with a very open hand and, and, and without any preconceived notions other than the fact that we hopefully know our Bible as leaders and we're going to look at it and go to what it has to say. One of the things that you'll see also if you study from Matthew through to Revelation is you will never see someone writing in the New Testament to the Mennonite brethren in Squamish or to the Baptists or to the Christian Reformed or to the Presbyterians or to the Alliance. 
You won't see that. You will see to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Corinth, or to the churches in Galatia. It's an important point that the New Testament actually is focused really on the churches. Now, one of the ways that people look at the New Testament and they read the New Testament, and it's good, trust me, this is a good thing, they read it and they go, wait a second, there is one way that they did gather in the New Testament church, in homes. There, done. We're doing it wrong here. We should be in my house today, all of us, or somebody's house. And that's what people conclude from that. Yes, they did. You actually will read Paul in Romans chapter 16 saying, by the way, say hello to the people gathering as the church in Aquila and Priscilla's home. Say hi to them for me. So he actually says that, but it's actually just a descriptive thing. It's not a prescriptive thing. So sometimes people get you know, hung up about that, and here's the reality of it. The truth is, is that yes, in the New Testament, they did begin gathering in people's homes. We actually do that as the church at The Rock, and we'll talk about that more next week when we get to the where, because we actually gather throughout the week, too, in homes, besides here in this place on Sundays. And so there's, there's silence. There's not a lot taught to us about what goes on in the early churches, um, but we're going to see as we get to the what today that there is a pattern. There is a pattern, and that pattern is important. So those are my caveats to begin with today. I put those out there as caveats just so that you have a frame of reference for some of the things that I might say or how we've arrived at uh, our definition of the why and the what and the who and the where of the church. So I thought one of the things that I should do uh, as we preface looking at the why and the what today also is to tell you a little bit about what happened seven and a half years ago when we planted this church. And so you can see how this evolved into what we are today. And so seven and a half years ago on Valentine's Day, February 14th, so it's kind of hard for me to forget, uh, that day we moved here. When I say we, Janice, myself, Matthew, who was doing the announcements here this morning, and our youngest son, Jonathan, uh, Andrew had already been married and moved away to Coquitlam, so the four of us moved here. That was it. Called to Squamish. Very clearly. That's a long story. You can ask me about it later if you want. Um, but very clearly called here to start a church, to plant a church. Not sure how that should look, but definitely the location was set in my mind, my heart, and my wife's heart, and others who um, mentored and, and discipled us before we moved here. So we move here, we move to this place, and we're like, okay, we get, we get a rental place up on, in the highlands, and we're like praying about, okay, how, what's this going to look like? And, okay, we're going to need some people, right? So we start praying, and we, Janice, great idea one night, she says, why don't we just have a small group in our house, just the four of us, and we'll start praying. And I'm like, well, why would, well, there's nobody here. Oh, okay, let's do that. And so we prayed, and then the next day, Jill Marie Bronson was knocking on our front door. Two days later, Paul Siemens was calling me going, hey, who are you? What are you doing here? Let's go for a coffee. And on and on it went. But an interesting thing happened. Maybe within one week of being here, I'm at Save On Foods, and I'm standing in line just ready to check out, and there's a young couple standing behind me. And like, as the, uh, the rookie church planter in town, which is what church planters do, I struck up a conversation, right? And, and of course, you kind of you work the conversation so they'll eventually ask you, what are you doing here? <laughs> what do you do? And this young lady, uh, probably early 20s, she said, so what are you doing here? What do you do? And I said, I'm planting a church. <laughs> I figured that would just, like, she'd be like, oh, good, can I come? That's not what happened. Um, she looks at me and she says, do people still do that? And I was like, oh, oh, oh you mean plant churches? And she said, no, go to church. 
I got to tell you, I, like, I get in my car and driving home going, oh, dear, <laughs> we're no longer in Kansas, Toto. I mean, this, is, this, is, this isn't going to be easy at all. But the thought that came to me after that, I mean, obviously, I wasn't dis- dissuaded by that. We, we planted the church. God blessed us with some amazing people who came and joined us, and many more have been coming along since those days. Um, but we, I realized at that time, oh, my, my. In order to reach this young culture, which is my heart, I love young men and women. If you're over 50, I love you too. Okay, but it, we're, our desire is to reach young men and women and, and, and teach them the truth about Jesus. If we have one desire as a church at all, it is this, that you will fall in love with Jesus Christ. Not the model, but the mission of Jesus Christ. And you'll give your whole life to him. I've got nothing else. We as a church have got nothing else. It's about Jesus And so that's our desire. So I'm thinking about this conversation, and I'm thinking, dear Lord, how are we going to do this? And so it was amazing because God started sending us these people, and we gathered together. It was really simple. I thought, okay, there's only two things that I know that I can do with my gifts and talents and abilities God's given to me, which are, you know, maybe just enough, if anything. And I thought, okay, what I can do is get this core group of men and women that were coming together And before we planted the church, nine months later, we had 16 adults, 12 kids, and we were like, let's start. And we did. But the two things that that came to my mind that we could do is this. With that core group of men and women is do exactly what I'm doing right now. Let's talk about what it means to be the church. Why? Why is there a church? What is the church? Who is the church? Where is the church? So that we could be the church here in Squamish. Then the second thing, thing was really simple. It's the only thing that actually I, I learned over the years was we're going, we're going to start our Sunday gathering services, and we're going to do this, preach the Bible. I know, it's rocket science, right? We're going to preach the Bible verse by verse through books of the Bible, and that's what we do as a church. That's what we've been doing, and that actually is what we're going to continue to do. And so that is how things began here. And, and, and along that process, there was one other thing that was really a key, and we'll get into it much more this week, uh, next week, pardon me, and that is our, our missional community groups. Our, our church actually did begin in our home. One of the reasons why we chose the place where we live today is when Janice and I walked in the front door, I saw the fireplace, and I saw the hot tub, and I was like, sold, right? <clears throat> Kidding. Janice saw the kitchen and the family room that, that spills out over that, and she saw, oh, this is Perfect for starting our gatherings in, and it was. And so we started in our home. For about six weeks, we gathered on Sundays. We also gathered throughout the week. But the core of our church is not this on Sundays. It's big. It's important. The core of our church are our missional community groups, which we'll talk more about next week, but it's where we gather also throughout the week in homes throughout Squamish so that we can know and learn more about Jesus and his word and also become family and begin loving one another And so that's my preamble for today. Let's look at, number one, the why. Why? Why? Why is there something called church? Have you ever thought of that? Stopped? This crazy thing that I do as a pastor sometimes is just sort of go, why? (laughs) And as I was thinking about this over the last month or so, I was going, why is there even something called church? And I've had people who I talk to at our coffee shop, and and, and they're, they're, they're... Their criticisms of the church or their objections to the church are one thing, but to a large extent, most of them don't actually understand why. Why there is something called church. Most think it's the Pope's, you know, he's responsible, right? Or or religious or men or people are are responsible for there being something called church. Why? Simple answer. It was Jesus' idea. (laughs) It was Jesus' idea. 
It was and is Jesus' idea, period. So in Matthew chapter 16, we, we actually see the first instance and use of the word church. Now, Matthew is the first book of the Bible in the New Testament, right? It, it, and, and in the 16th chapter, chapter, Jesus is the one who first uses the word. Now, we need a little bit of background on that passage before we get to what he actually says because it's important. It's about two years into his ministry of where he has been going about calling men and women to follow him, to become his disciples, and he's been preaching about the kingdom of God. And he's been preaching a lot, right? He is the greatest preacher of all time, not Peter, not Paul, certainly not me, not anybody that you listen to or their podcasts, greatest preacher of all time, Jesus Christ. And that's what he's been doing, he's preaching for two and a half years. He stops on the way, just as they're outside of Caesarea Philippi, and he turns to his disciples, and he looks at them, and he goes, who do people say that I am? <laughs> I remember reading that for the first time and going, that's pretty arrogant. I mean, no, I'm just kidding. But it's kind of bold, isn't it, for Jesus to be going, who do people say that I am? I mean, it's, it's, it's presuming something. People were talking about him. They were. In that day, in a tremendous way, thousands of people were coming out over those two years, following him, listening to him. He's raising people from the dead. <laughs> He's feeding thousands, performing all kinds of miracles, preaching amazing sermons and messages. And so they've got, you've got these people, uh, the, just normal citizens of the, of the, of the Greco-Roman world, following him, coming out to hearing him, and also the religious leaders coming out to hearing him. And now he's asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, his disciples respond and say, well, some people say that uh, you're John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead, because he was just recently beheaded. Or, or some say that you're Elijah, also brought back. Jesus does something remarkable at that point. He looks at his disciples, and he says the same thing that he would say to you in this room today. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Very important question. Well, Peter, of course, the one who can never uh, be second, right? You know, there's a video series out there called I Am Second, and Peter is I Am First, right? And so he blurts out, you are the son. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And you can just imagine Peter standing back and going, hey, guys, see, look at that. I got that right. Well, Jesus puts him in this place very quickly, very quickly when Jesus actually says this to him. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Not because you're so smart, but for this reason. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Then Jesus says these great words. And I tell you, you are Peter. In the Greek... Petra, small rock. Upon this rock, Petros, big rock, your testimony of faith in who I am, I will build my church. Now, most of your rocksters know that we've unpacked this, this verse a lot because we get our mission and our vision from this. You know, upon this rock, I will build my church, uh, making Jesus known as our vision and mission as a church. And we get that from this actual passage. In that day, they knew who he was. Today, most people have, they know the name, but they don't really know who he is. That's our job, by the way. That's our responsibility. So there's lots to note here, but the really quick things that I will say is this. And this is really encouraging to me. <laughs> as a church planter, as one of the body here that feels sometimes that it's our responsibility to build the church, he says, I'll do that. Jesus says, I'll do that. Why? It's my church, guys. It's not Glenn's church. It's not anyone else's church. It's my church. 
He also says, I will build it. And so some people look at the word will and they think it's future tense. It's actually not really future tense. Some interesting things that we're going to see about that. But it's also very important what, what, what you saw from what Peter said, which is what is going to build his church, is this testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Romans 10.9, the same thing. He says this, and this is the, the clincher, the key to the gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen? How difficult is that? Well, it is difficult for lots of people to confess that and to believe that and to trust that. So the word that Jesus uses that's translated in the Greek is the word ekklesia. That's the word that is used there. And it's, it's kind of, I, I love it since the day that I became a Christian at 23 years of age, raised Catholic. Um, lots of things about what happened to me before that, which we won't get into. It wasn't pretty. Uh, but, you know, I, I came face to face with the reality that Jesus really is the son of the living God. I'd heard his name before. I prayed to him. I come to this realization that he is the son of the living God. And so one of the things that I needed to understand, I really needed to understand because I was raised Catholic, is what does the church look like? What, I mean, is it priests? Is it the pope, cardinals, bishops? Is it all that? Or what, what are, why are these guys without a tie or whatever standing up and reading the Bible? Who give them the, the right to do that in the Protestant churches that I started going to? This word ecclesia struck me right away. Because it, it, what's happened in our culture is it's become badly interpreted. For example, one of the things as a church at The Rock that we try not to do, and again, you're going to think I'm crazy, but we try not to say we're going to church. Or why don't you come to church with me? It's the wrong impression. That young lady that I met at Save on Food, she says, is that what people still do? Do people still go to church? See, we don't go to church. Here's one for you. The church is not a building place or an event. And so we don't want to use that kind of language. And you can say, well, come on, I get the point, but is it really that important? Yeah, it is, if you want to understand who the church really is and what it is and why. It's you. It's me. We're the church. We're the body of Christ. So that word, church, now where did it come from? So you may go, well, it's a translation of ecclesia. Actually, it's not. It's not at all a translation of the word ecclesia, to church. We actually get it primarily from the German, and I'm going to try to get it right this time. The German is spelt K-I-R-C-H-E, and so you can see where we get C-H-U-R-C-H kind of right from, but the actual pronunciation in German is Kirchia. I'm going to try to get that right this time, Kirchia. And so we actually got in our English translations the word church from the German Kirchia, spelt K-I-R-C-H-E. It's really important for you to know, isn't it? Well, maybe not. But here's what's really important to know. When Jesus said that word on that day to his disciples in that place, here's what they would have heard. They would have heard the word ecclesia, and they would have went, wow, that's different. I've never heard that before. It's not synagogue. It's not temple. You see, the word ecclesia in Greek in that day, everyone knew that word. Everyone knew that word. It was literally translated this way, a gathering of people called out of their homes. That's interesting. Why would it be translated? What did it mean? Well, if an orator or if a magistrate or some civil uh, or a philosopher was wanting to call people to the amphitheater to have a discussion, in other words, people were being called out of their homes to a gathering to hear something, 
it would have been posted as an ecclesia. And so when Jesus said these words to his disciples, he probably would have said it, this is the way they would have heard it. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my gathering of called out people, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that's different, isn't it? How do you go to that? Well, you can go to that, but that's what we are. We're a gathering of people, and and this is why Jesus started this thing called church, was to gather us together to hear something called the good news as brought to us by Jesus Christ. So now that we understand the word a little bit better and that it was first used by Jesus, therefore proving that it was his idea, at least, what about the question of when? When did the church begin? This is an important question because some people would say, well, right there. Like Jesus said, I will build my church starting now, right? Because you guys are here and I'm defining it. And some people would say, no, 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 wait a second. Not until Acts 2, right? When the Holy Spirit comes upon them. There's some good rationale for that. I want to show you something else. There's something else that's really important to understand church. Look with me at Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Go back with me if you would. Chapter 4 begins this way. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, to prepare for his earthly ministry. He's starving. (laughs) He's weak after 40 days, and he's attacked by whom? Satan. Three times Satan tries to get Jesus to give it up, to give up what he's come to this earth to do. The most beautiful thing about this part of the passage is that there's a, there's a, there's a parallel to what Adam and Eve did. He came and tempted them, and they failed. Jesus was tempted three times, and he succeeded. That's really the most important thing about that. But a couple things go on there. In verses 8 and 9, it says this, And again the devil, this is the third time now, took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain, And showed them all, look at this, the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, or to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Oh my, now this is arrogance, right? But actually in a way not, because he says, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. In other words, the world is made up of kingdoms and I will give them all to you. Now it's interesting because Jesus doesn't say to him, those aren't your kingdoms, because actually they are. He is Lord over those kingdoms. At least he was (laughs) at that point. But he offers these kingdoms to Jesus. Jesus' response to him is basically, get behind me. It's done. Forget it. No. I've come here to follow my Father's will. And so he succeeds where Adam failed, and then he leaves. He leaves, and he comes back right after he leaves the wilderness, after succeeding and, and, and not being tempted by Satan to give up uh, what he's come to do. He says these remarkable words in verse 17. It says, from that time Jesus began to preach, this is when he began his preaching ministry, this, repent for the kingdom of heaven, or God, Matthew uses heaven in his gospel a lot, but it's the same as kingdom of God, is at hand. This is what Jesus came to do. Establish his kingdom, his reign, and his rule. Then, not yet fully realized, as now, in the future, to be fully realized. It was about the kingdom. And so I I want you to see a little bit of a parallel here. There's something called the kingdom, and there's something called the church. Then look what he does in verse 18 and 19. Just following this, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is hand. And then the first thing he does right after that is, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw... Two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter. There he is, first one called. That's interesting. That's important. That doesn't make him pope. 
but he's the first one called. And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So what did Jesus just do? Two things. He called them out of their father's fishing business, but also out of their homes to follow him, to be gathered with others. And then he goes forward from there and calls a few more to follow him. And then it's amazing. By, by the time we get to verse 23, he's probably invited, because if you look at the other gospels and put them all together, he's probably invited about 10 or 12 people to follow him, mostly men at this time, but women are also following him. And then what does he do? He goes, okay, we're going we're gonna to start church now. Like, no, <laughs> he actually doesn't do that. But, but wait a second, I don't know. What it says in verse 23 is this. And he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so Jesus goes on to preach the kingdom of God throughout his ministry. It's the main thing for Jesus. That's the main thing for Jesus. We miss that a little bit sometimes, but it was the main thing for Jesus. It's interesting, the book of Acts, which we know because we've studied it as a, as a church, but you probably know that the book of Acts is really the story of the beginning and expansion and explosion of the church. It is. But actually, the book is about the kingdom. It's about the kingdom. It starts that way. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, it says this, he presented himself alive to them. Who? Jesus. He's now dead, buried, resurrected. He's been around for about 40 days, been seen by over a 1,000 people many times. He presents himself to them for the last time after suffering many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about, okay, here's how you're going to do church. Actually, no. <laughs> about the kingdom of God. And then the whole book of Acts goes on. And, and yes, the church gets started in a major way. And yes, they start gathering together in homes. And yes, all that happens. It's important. It is really important. But the real key is, Paul even ends. The, the, in Acts chapter 28, in the last few verses of the, the book of Acts, it actually ends saying this. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so we see that the key theme in the New Testament is that Jesus came to establish his kingdom then, now, not yet fully realized, but that was his primary goal. The, the, let me put it to you this way, and most of you are going to go, amen, thank you, Jesus. The president of the United States is not king today. Amen? Justin is not king no leader in this world today is king. We have etched on the arches of the parliament buildings in Canada, the dominion of Canada, by the way, Psalm 72.8, that says, and he shall have dominion from sea to sea and to the ends of the rivers. Who? Jesus. Friends, I hope if you take anything away from all of this today as you walk out of here going, you know what? Jesus is really king. Well, if he's really king, then what does that make you and I? Citizens in his kingdom. And that's who he's calling us to be, is citizens in his kingdom. So I'm sure you can see there is some relationship between kingdom and the church, and that they're this, not the same thing exactly. So that brings us to the what. The what. What is the church? 
What is the church? Well, I've got a simple definition for you. It's more than that, and we're going to get that expanded next week as well. But simply, it's this, and I've said this before, and, and I'm going to repeat it today, and please hear this, because I know that so many of us, we get caught up in politics, and I do too. You know, I want certain people to win, and I want them to put righteous laws in place and actually keep them and things like that. We all do. I understand that. But here's the deal. Christian, here's the deal. The church is actually Jesus' plan A for the redemption and restoration of the world. The church is. The church. That's a huge responsibility, but it's also an awesome calling. It's an incredibly awesome calling that you and I have been called to, and it's beautiful. So one big mistake that I think we often make in the church today is to think that it, the church, is the goal. I know as a church leader and as a pastor, as a church planter, I get caught up on that all the time. It's the church. Like, we got to get people to come to church. Okay, don't, don't say that. We don't, we don't do that. We, we gather as a church, right? But we, we seem to think that the church is what it is. It's all about the goal. Jesus did say that he would build his ecclesia, but it wasn't the goal of his life and ministry. His goal was and is the establishing of his kingdom. So then what is the relationship to the kingdom that Jesus has already established that he is building and that one day he will fulfill and rule as king over everything completely? Hallelujah. Please, may that day come sooner than later. What is the church? It is this. It is the vehicle to bring people into the kingdom of God. That's what the church is all about. That's why we're here. If you study the Gospels and the whole New Testament, for that matter, but especially the teachings of Jesus, it's, it's clear that Jesus had no interest in politics. None. Yeah, okay, if Caesar's face is the one who's on the coin today, pay your taxes to him, but also give to God. That was the flip side of the coin that he actually talked about when he was asked about who should we pay taxes to, right? And so his plan A for the redemption and restoration of this world is the church. So, so what is the church? Well, as we've already stated, it's not a building place or an event. It's us, those who are called through the New Testament to be part of his church. But we also see in the New Testament four other metaphors kind of that are used, right? It's the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ, right? Jesus is the head. We are the members. That's where we get the idea of membership that some people don't like, but it's actually, it's a metaphor that means something. And we're the bodies, and the body needs to work together and be together and, and in order to be, I mean, the separate limbs all over the place doesn't make a body. You know, we need to gather together and be together to be the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. Oh, my. How much does that speak into the sanctity of marriage? A husband and a wife and the things that we must hold to. Why? Because it's important. It, it's a metaphor for what the church is, but, but it's also the family of God and the temple of God. Now, most of you, again, as rocksters, you know that from the verses I'm going to put on screen, this is where we get our primary identity as members of the church. It's from Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, which you see on screen, and it's Jesus' command to the disciples then and for us today, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them everything that I've commanded to you. Teach them everything that I have commanded you. Teach it to them, please. And by the way, I'll be with you until the end of the age. So we get from this verse, and some of you, this might be a bit of a new epiphany for you, but it's, this is where we get our identity as a family of missionary servants, right? 
This is not just something that I quote or anybody quotes when you dunk somebody in baptism, right? Some people think it is. Oh, yeah, that's, that's what that verse is for. Actually, no, it's for much more than that. It's a naming ceremony. So when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are baptized into the Father. You are now a son or a daughter in the family of God. You've been placed into his family. That's important. And then when you're baptized into the name of the Son, you now have a king. <laughs> you now have a king. Your king is not any ruler of this world or yourself or your spouse or your kids who can rule and reign, trust me. Uh, no, it's Jesus. And so how do you serve your king? Well, in the same way that he served by serving others. And then you're baptized into the Holy Spirit, and you are now sent in the power of the Holy Spirit by Jesus as a missionary. So that, in a nutshell, is how we, the church, become the vehicle that expands the kingdom of God. We go and make disciples who make disciples. And this is one way to describe what the church is. It, it, it is a disciple-making organism. It's not an organization. It's a disciple-making organism. It's awesome. i got a lot more here. I'm going to really quickly move through this because I want you to see two things. So Jesus sends his disciples right there. He gives the command. But first of all, he says, listen, what you got to do is wait for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And they do. And you know what happens on the day of Pentecost, right? The Holy Spirit, boom. He falls on the disciples. Whoa. It's the most amazing day really in history when the Holy Spirit came in that way. Because now the temple of God is here. There. It's in you. And we read, Peter, Peter, that guy, right, preaches the most amazing sermon, really, of any human being other than Jesus Christ at that time. And they're cut to the heart. And then we read in verses 41 to 42, so they received his word. Those who received his word, those who received his word, were baptized. And there were added, so I find it interesting, the added to what? So the church began there? or Okay, so just think about that. That day, about 3,000 souls, and look at this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, when did this happen? It happened on the first day of the week. It happened on Sunday, which happens to be the same day that Jesus rose from the dead, Sunday, which happened to be the same day for the rest of the book of Acts that the church gathers. And follows this principle. So this is a little bit about what the church actually does, right? There's a principle there. They gather, we gather as a church here, and that's how we're trying to live that out here. We gather to do four things every Sunday. The Apostles' Doctrine. That's what I'm reading here. It's the New Testament. It's the Word of God. It's the Apostles' Doctrine. We teach what the Bible says. They break bread. We're going to have communion this morning. They have fellowship with one another. And by the way, that's not just coffee and tea. It is that, but it's also koinonia, holding all things in common. It's sharing our wealth in possessions, materially, and finances with one another. That's what fellowship really is. And then there's the prayers. And so that's, there's a pattern for you. There's what the church is, as far as what it does, is right there. And it's awesome. And that's how we actually ended up with the liturgy that we has, have as a church. Now, let me just click quickly say one more thing about this, because we'll come back to this next week. I'm going to read a passage for you, and I want you to, I'm not going to put it on screen, I want you to read it with me as we come to a conclusion, and I want you to see something, because I'll tell you what, this to me, uh, personally, besides Roman 10, about preaching, is, uh, this is my job description as a pastor, leader in the church, and I think it's also yours, but I, I just want to read it to you. And so it begins in chapter 4 of Ephesians, if you had your finger there, you can read it with me. Beginning in verse 11, it says this. 
And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Stop there. He gave these gifts to the church then and now. Jesus has gifted the church with people in leadership roles who have apostolic, which is not the capital A apostles in the days of Jesus. That's a different apostleship. Small A apostleship is people given to planting, missionaries, starters, initiators. The apostle Paul, of course, was a capital A, but others are listed in the New Testament as being apostles, including women, by the way. Are claimed to be Junia, is claimed to be an apostle, small a. Why? Because she was a starter of a ministry somewhere. And so it's a gifting of starting. And so he gives these gifts to the church, look at this, for the equipping of the saints for what? The work of ministry. So my job, my role is twofold in this church. <laughs> well, it's many, but, but two major ones. One is to study hard enough to be able to preach God's word in such a way that you understand it so that you are equipped. For what? The work of ministry. I'm not not the only person here in ministry. You are. We all are. Or at least we're all supposed to be. And then it goes on to say this. I'll just read through it. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Unity would be awesome. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and, uh, waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We'll unpack this more next week. But here's the key that I want to show you for today, and that is this. Number one, what is the church? It's Jesus' idea. That's the why and the what. It's his idea for the redemption and plan A, redemption and restoration of the world. It is made up of a family of missionary servants. It's made up of a family of missionary servants. And then lastly, I want you to see this from Acts 2. 42, and what I just read to you, because there's something really unique there. I don't know if you saw it, and it's the best word I can come up with, but the church is this. It's an incubator. It's an incubator. It's a place where you and I gather together, are called out of this world, called together today and throughout the week, where we are called in gatherings of the church on Sunday in our homes and cafes throughout the week that we disciple one another, call others out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. It's where we get equipped, trained up to be able to do that in this world and life today. That's why I think Paul actually wrote these words in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It's a refreshing way for me to look at this. I hope it is for you today, and I'll close with these verses. He said this, all scripture, which is all I've got to share with you, not my advice, but the good news of Jesus Christ, is breathed out, inspired by God, and profitable for look, teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may may be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, the why is this? The church is Jesus' idea, and it's his vehicle for the redemption and restoration of this world. Does this world need 
redeeming? Does it need restoration? We're plan A. We're plan A. How strong do you feel about that today? I tell you what, if you feel weak about that, then okay, so do I. But we can be strong about that. We can be very strong about that. We need two things. We need the Holy Spirit, and we need each other, and we need to call others to that. There's a third one for you. Pray with me, would you?